Let's do it. They, Let's the do people it. people need it. The people need it. Oh my god. I, I can't believe... I like, can't believe oh, uh, this. This is this is uh, this couldn't be any more exciting for me. This is probably my most excited podcast ever. Beyond is the reason why because we have a lot of video games. Yes, we do have a lot of. Video Did we games. say podcast beyond because that's uh, is that still around? It probably it is. is. It, this is this is po- this is podcast beyond version 2.0, and I could not beyond. be any more excited beyond it. And it's not because of the video games, James. Is because of the board games? No, it's, it's not of the because board of that. Games. It's not because of that RPGs. either. It's not because of anything. TV. The movies, reason why it's exciting fishing. is because Sports. Microsoft, fuck you, straight fuck you, right now in the beginning of the podcast. I'm cursing right off the bat. This is already Whoa. a this is already rated 18 podcast because guess what? Microsoft did a big update. And suddenly my okay. microphone didn't work for two weeks. I could not figure out why. I looked at tons of YouTube videos. The amount of YouTube videos I looked at, James, I could swear to you. And is that is why this is so a Sony podcast many. now? That this must is, be why. That is why this is an exciting podcast. Because I finally... A Sony podcast. A Sony podcast. podcast on this, because Well, Sony hates Microsoft. And on this day, on this very day of our Lord, on... Uh, what is this? June the fourth. Be with you. Uh, we. Uh, I finally found out that the reason why, and if you're wondering why we haven't had podcasts, is because my mic hasn't worked. And the reason why my mic hasn't worked is because in a most recent update of Microsoft 10 of Windows 10, there was a secret new feature, a fun secret new feature, a secret new feature that I love called um, microphone privacy. And microphone privacy, what it did is it didn't hey, tell you it nice. existed. It's a new feature. And what it does is it allows none of your uh, software to uh, see what your microphone is doing. It, it, it Brian, basically... I, have a, I have to tell you something. What? We've updated our privacy policy. Guess what? So did Microsoft. And when they updated their privacy policy, what it meant for me was that my microphone didn't work and I had no idea why my microphone didn't work. And it turns out there's a secret little tiny setting, this new little thing called Microsoft called microphone privacy. And what it does is it is enabled by default and it doesn't allow any of your programs to listen to your microphone. So the fun thing was that I was going on. Why wasn't this enabled? To me by default, because I have the microphone privacy setting. Because this is what computers are. Computers are a labyrinth of horseshit all the time. That one little thing gets changed, and you have to go through a million different tutorials to find it. Is that the answer? No, that's not the answer. And then finally you find the answer, and it's like, wow, are you kidding me? It was uh, it was an option. There was an option. Am I, am I crazy for thinking that you just type microphone into your computer? I typed microphone... microphone into my computer. I did so many things with sounds. I deleted drivers. I did drivers updates. I did a seat cleaning. I did so much because I, okay. I didn't. I didn't know whether or not it was this microphone. This Microsoft Ten. Oh my god! I'm so angry. Uh, Ryan, is this a microphone podcast? This is not a microphone podcast. Please get me away from this. We have so much good stuff to talk about. I have, we have, we are, we are two weeks down the hole, and if it, the the amount of backlog that I have right now in video games is the amount of is very very equivalent to the amount of backlog we have right now in the podcast. There's about no way that we can finish with all the horseshit, the good shit, and and because of that, we really need to like. Um... We need to keep it tight. We need to keep it focused. We need to not get too deep in the weeds on any of these games. No, we got to get loose. All right. So where do we even begin? Where do, do we even begin? Do you want to talk about the new stuff? Do you want to talk about the old stuff? What do you want to do? 
Because I've got new stuff. I've got old stuff. I've got E3 leaks for you. Um, I, I see some E3 leaks. Oh my God. I gotta, I gotta raise you some E3 leaks. I gotta raise you some E3 leaks with Hots. Still loving Hots. And Hots has a Draenei Paladin upcoming. Very excited about that. That's what I'm leading with. No more information on top of that. I want to talk right, about... Bloodborne 2, E3 leak. I gotta... Bl- what? Bloodborne 2, E3 leak. What? Bloodborne 2 E3 what for PlayStation E3 2018. This is a Sony podcast. What? And I hear that PlayStation E3 2018 leak includes Bloodborne 2. Player Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, which is maybe not very interesting. New SOCOM, new Devil May Cry 5, and more. Devil May Cry 5, I I'm I am super down. Bloodborne 2? Bloodborne. Are you what? down? What'd you say? Bloodborne 2. What? Are you down? He's not down. <laughs> that, that What a question to ask. How rude of you. How rude of you. My game Big of the true. year. Bloodborne. All right. Um, Big if true. The, the, the amount of stuff that I'm excited for at the moment and stuff that we're seeing. I mean, this is, this is the year I've been recently thinking, like, this is the year of, because we didn't have it last year, um, the indie surprises that you didn't know you were going to need but then you do totally need oh baby don't even start talking to me about indie surprises because i have been playing myself right now some of those right now we got to talk about some indie surprises because so let's I start with one that we've both firing played, right are, is it are, are, are you talking about something that starts with an m let's talk about moonlighter right because moonlighter is a game uh that is similar in uh premise to reciteer Uh, But Moonlighter is a roguelite uh, sort of action RPG, sort of plays like um, Legend of Zelda, Link to the Past. Uh, Really nice pixel art style where you play as an item shop owner and essentially you sell items in the day and by night you go to the dungeon and you get stuff to sell. That's why the game is so cleverly named Moonlighter, which is also the name of your shop in the game. And town, by the way. The town is not named Moonlighter, but... It is named Moonlighter. The shop is. I thought the, the town was named Moonlighter. You would be wrong. What is the shop... The, the, what is the town name, then? Let's look it up, because we're... The town is Renoka. Oh, So let's get Renoka. deep into the weeds. Okay. All right, we're getting let's deep get into the weeds already. Okay, okay. If there was going to be a game that we're going to get deep into the weeds with, it should be Moonlighter, because... Eh. Okay. You, you can give me Pretty an eh. You can give me an ad, but in in the year of our Lord 2018, um, with uh, uh, up next behind Slay the Spire, the indie game that I have had the most fun with is in fact Moonlighter. Uh, That's because you haven't played our next game, but go on. Okay, well I I played it for an hour, but well or, or for 15 minutes actually. You haven't played me. it at all, but you know let's not get deep in the weeds on the uh, the setup of the of the podcast. Oh, uh, have I not played Cultist Simulator? Oh, have you? You have, have not. Have I played? I told you. I just said. I knew. I knew exactly what we were talking, talking about. about. I played it for fifteen minutes. But right, I, I played keep... it for fifteen minutes. I want you to sell me more on it because I've only played it for fifteen minutes. But uh, Moonlighter, I didn't get a, like a ton of chance. It, and by didn't get a ton of chance, I mean that uh, I had an extremely busy week alongside the fact that we couldn't podcast. And um, I, 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 with whatever free time I had, I was playing Moonlighter um, first. The thing that I have to talk about, obviously, is the aesthetic you talked about. It's a gorgeous pixel game. It's amazing. But amazing, like, 
it, it, it's 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 easy to just say it's a pretty pixel game right because wizards of legend like that that was a pretty pixel game it is so, it continues so to be a let me pixel. give you like some context it's really like um it's like dead cells if dead cells were friendly and top down that's kind of what moonlighter looks like with these chunky pixels you think dead cells because i wouldn't say that at all i it, i think uh i think it looks very pixels. chibi it's got the same um some of the same typefaces even i don't know i feel like it's very chibi but um the the game itself is just beautiful and i it, the the um the sort of uh like what is the term for terminology for this the arc like the 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 gameplay loop the gameplay the, loop yeah, the gameplay is loop. is brutal on my my psyche because you you go into these dungeons and you're having fun and you're you're doing that roguelike style, like press your luck, like how far can you go? How dangerous can it get? If it's more dangerous, you it's more rewarding. It's it they're the enemies are dropping all this loot, all either big loot like weapons or small loot, but it, that is still exciting, like stackable. Can I, can I tell you one of my favorite parts of Moonlighter is Please. actually the inventory management. It is a huge part of that game, but the, it's not that it's a simple thing because there is a heretofore uh, set amount of inventory in your backpack and on your person, and there's a difference between this. Um, you, your back when you're when you die in the dungeon, you can reset at die where in you real life. at you started. You do die in real life, so unfortunately, you're just dead. But if you weren't dead, what you could do is you could keep playing, but everything in your pack is lost, and everything on your person is kept which means that you can keep a certain amount of very important items. Maybe you get something consumable that you've been looking for for a long time. Maybe it's worth yeah. a lot of money, and maybe it's actually a, a uh, crafting material that you've been waiting to upgrade your weapon or your armor or something like that. So it could either be yeah, something so, that helps so you. Also, yeah, let's be clear that it's not really a roguelite insofar as it is more like a Souls-like, if that's a better way to put it. I mean, if isn't everything souls souls like when you think about well, you it? go in. It's about like pushing your luck, and if you die, you drop the stuff you had. But you do not get it, it does, back. It is not like yeah, a souls but, where where you die and you get it back if you go. But to you do it. have your permanent your items like permanently and forever. Like if you upgrade a sword or you upgrade your armor, then they're they're just upgraded forever. So we could call this a rogue like. Well, we certainly can't call it a roguelike because that'll upset some people. But How about a roguelite? That is getting started. All right. So uh, I, I think that the brilliance of the gameplay loop is the fact that you are in the dungeon. You're having fun. You're pushing your luck. It's exciting. You are getting drops. You are excited about the drops because you know what you can possibly do when you go back home. Then... Uh, you die or you don't die and you, you get fur far enough that you can make some progress or you don't get far enough that you can make some progress and you decide that you got to go home. Now, during the day, you are a shopkeeper. The game expands the mechanics of being a shopkeeper and running the town. So there's a lot of that. Uh, uh, there's a lot of progress in upgrading the town, upgrading the shops in the town and upgrading your own shop, uh, adding multiple um uh, levels onto your store, adding more display okay. tables, adding so different... So I want to talk a little bit about my problem with Moonlighter, and maybe you can tell me if this is something that gets resolved. But so far, I feel like the shop selling, like the item selling mechanics aren't very interesting. I feel like 
it's essentially the same thing as if in an RPG, you would go to the store and sell your items, except that this one has just more mechanics. Where um, I feel like I'm, I'm just trying to like find the right price and sometimes I don't get it right. And I, I feel like there's not really, their supply and demand isn't well like explained if there is one. Uh, there is. Um, so I'll try and answer this as best as I can with the five hours that I've played. So after I got a big shop upgrade, it gave me two different tables to sell at. And also as you progress in the game, you start getting people who are trying to steal the items in your shop and they will just take it and leave the item. So you have to mo both be watching the shop, watching the customer's reactions to the prices you have and be watching for people that intend to, to, th to, to shoplift. Um, where that, why this is different than a, an RPG where you just sell something for a set price is that different people in the town have different, uh, uh, prices that they will buy things at, and they are interested in different items at different prices, as well as the fact that there are, uh, people who have different jobs and professions in the town where they might be in more interested in an item over another item. So, for example, most people will overlook all the weapons you sell, but adventurers, if they come in, will well, heroes, actually what the game calls them, will buy weapons for an extremely high price for a gougingly high price. Um, finding what the prices are because there is a pretty big gap in between uh, what people, what some people will buy it for and what some people won't buy it for is interesting. And then the, all the meantime, you are, it, it becomes a very active ec economic game because you are watching over multiple tables, watching your, your, uh, patrons as they walk in, seeing what they like, what they don't like. If they get offended by how high a price is, if they're really happy with the price, then maybe that price is a little too low. Maybe you are giving it away a little bit too cheap and you have to start thinking about things like that. Yeah. And then all the okay, same, so the, the while like like expanded a bit though. That's good to know. All the while, like as you get expanded, you have more tables. You have a bargain bin that that people will always go to when they enter the the shop to try and buy things at and get excited I about. I didn't even know about that. Um, I didn't so, know there was a bargain bin. There is a lot more. When things. do I get cool stuff? Because so far I'm still in the golem dungeon. Have you gotten to the part where you unlocked the hawker? I believe. No, I didn't. So okay. I guess wow. Okay. On. So, so far, you, I've only got two uh, shops open. I have the armor crafter, and I have the uh, item crafter who makes you, like, potions and things like that. Okay, so you get to a point in the game, and I don't think this is a spoiler. I just want to talk about it, where there is a shop that will give you different things that add, basically, perks onto your shop. Stuff like a nice little mini calming waterfall that will allow people to wait longer in line if there's a huge issue stuff that will allow it so that there are less thieves or that thieves move slower stuff that allow it so that more people are allowed into your shop at the same time stuff to allow it that people will tip higher if you provide good service and that you um, allow them to purchase it quickly without with them waiting online for a long time. There's all these mechanics that end up uh, starting to go on during the shopkeeping phase that do not make it feel like you are just selling. Um, it's more this like strange economic uh, game where you are watching for shopkeepers, you are moving around prices d d based on supply and demand currently. Um, and you are trying to manage uh, people who have bought things and quickly 
uh, sell to them at the cash register. So like you're 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 moving around and you're basically like balancing a lot of plates at the same time. I find it really enjoyable. I could imagine people that are like, just let me get on with it. Just let me, you know, uh, uh, take all these Do resources this and yeah. sell them. I hear you. That's that's cool. Uh, I, I'm you have me excited to play this game more hearing all of this because like i said when i first started it's kind of a kind of a slow burn but i really do like the push your luck mechanics in the dungeon and the idea of like the fact that there's different ways to leave the dungeon based on how much like money and resources you want to spend to get in and out i think it i think it starts to get kind of bonkers with the way that the game awesome. works because the the entire game has that sort of I don't know I don't know if this is gonna make any sense to you because it really doesn't make any sense to me um, like a like a uh, harvest moon style uh, you everything is working together and you are constantly getting yeah. progress but it's very exciting it's like Stardew Valley yeah start yeah sure Stardew Valley is a good example like it's uh, incremental. It's very incremental, but you're also, and probably similar to Stardew Valley, you're making these choices whether or not, do you want to sell something for a lot of money, a resource, a uh, an item for a lot of money, um, or do you want to use it to maybe upgrade your armor to go further in the dungeon, or do you want to sell it to, you know, uh, increase, get more money to... Uh, expand your shop to expand your town of Ryoka. And I think that that is like so fascinating because what, what makes the game so impossible to put down for me is that you are always, once you finish a thing that you're doing, you are on to the next thing with it, which is exciting. Like once you finish, you finish a run of the dungeon and you don't really want to put the game down because you want to go to the moonlighter and you want to do a whole sales phase and then get money and upgrade your shop or upgrade your armor. But what happens is you yeah. end up like upgrading your shop, upgrading your armor, upgrading your weapons. And you're like, hey, I can get a little bit further in the dungeon this yeah. time. And then Just you want to go further in the dungeon. But going further in the dungeon means you're going to get all these new items. And when you go to the different areas of the dungeon, you start to get new resources that can upgrade your armor or your weapons get, down different yeah. upgradable trees. Yeah. Uh, and are there more expandable trees? Because so far at the start, they sort of show you... Okay, two trees. Two I think there's more. Okay, I hope so, because that would be dope. There is more, and there's more to the items and weapons that you currently don't see. Okay, that's awesome. So I'm looking forward to checking that out more, but I am packed with things to play uh we briefly mentioned the the uh name cultist simulator earlier. okay so which wanna... is one of the most intriguing one of the most out of left field games of 2018 like moonlighter isn't out of left field enough but uh i played um i bought cultist simulator on your recommendation i trust you a lot james um i played it for 15 minutes and maybe it was just because i worked like 15 hours last night um but i wasn't currently uh feeling it um but i only played like 15 minutes so maybe i didn't really get to what makes that game like that, that game and it is weird as hell it is unlike anything else that i've ever seen it's it so is so bizarre so so i'll let you explain it you are further so the way that cultist simulator works is first off it is a video game but it plays as like a tabletop card game where you have all of these cards uh and all these things to manage. But the way that it starts is you simply have a slot called work and a card called menial employment. 
So you have to take the menial employment and drag it to the work slot. After the menial, the menial employment concludes, you get funds, which are money. And then a, a new slot appears. The new slot is called time. And then every minute, funds are going to be sucked away. So there's this idea of like, okay, there are things that I'm always going to need. And chief among them are funds. But as you play the game, new types of slight slots start to um, appear. So you're going to have a slot for study and a slot for dream. And as you accrue new cards, you get to sort of test the waters of like, okay, so what happens if I have a dream on passion? Or what happens if I have an affliction and I dream on that affliction? What happens if I study using my reason? And there's all this experimenting that goes on where you're trying things out and you're cooking up new cards. But the, the writing of the game is fantastic. And the game is all about uh, trying to form a Lovecraftian cult in the 1920s. And all of the sort of, oh man, it, it's so hard to figure out where to start explaining this. But one thing that I did was I took a passion card, which is sort of like a resource. You have these uh, three chief resources, which are uh, passion, reason, and health. And I dragged passion into work. And then I realized, okay, so this character likes painting. And uh, as I was doing that, uh, then it asked me, okay, so what's your inspiration? And I noticed that I had dread and I had restlessness on the table. And I realized that either of those two things could be the inspiration for my painting. So I took the dread and I used that as sort of the inspiration for painting. And then it said, okay, so do you want to buy good paints? And I said, sure. So I spent some extra money buying good paints. And when it concluded, uh, I made this notable painting that gave me mystique. But it also gave me this person who started taking an interest in me. Uh, he's sort of this essayist who sort of became a follower of mine. And that's when I had the ability to learn how to talk. And then I pretty much said, hey, do you want to join a cult? And things just started to get weirder and weirder, where at some point I just became this really well-known painter. And then this journalist keeps kept snooping on me. So this journalist was trying to collect clues on, on what I'm doing. But every time that I would paint, I did it on some obscure subject like dread or restlessness. And whenever I did that, I would generate something called mystique. And mystique is able to keep the journalist interested in me while giving him no real evidence about what I have going on behind the scenes. So I have this bad resource called notoriety, which if it, he sucks it up, it can create evidence on what I'm doing. But if he sucks up my mystique, then it's actually hiding it more and more. So every time, so it's this really interesting thing of I would use my notoriety to uh, bring people into my paintings while at the same time hiding it away from the, uh, the journalist who is trying to get clues on me. And at one point, I had amassed such a fortune that I was able to hire people to do this crazy heist on this museum and steal all these like ancient painting supplies, which I then used uh, to paint and to get even more money. But then I created notoriety because someone recognized the paints that I had stolen. And man, it is so fascinating because then eventually you get all of these choices about like, well, what kind of... Um, what does your cult care about? Do you care about 
uh, light? Do you care about darkness? Do you care about opening doors? Like, what is it that you're interested in? And then you can dream on these different like cult phenomena and study them. And it's so hard to explain exactly all the things that are going on because at the same time, this is really like a resource management game that's taking place on a tabletop where you're looking at all these countdown timers and managing your resources and reading all the good writing that's in the game. Yeah, I don't know seems... if any of this sells you on it, but I don't know. It, it seems very emergent. Crazy. Like it seems very weird. Like choose your own adventure. You do you you do one thing. Like try and dream on something or work on something or you know think about study something, and then suddenly you get cards back that tell you this is happening, and then you deal with that in a certain way, and then you get more dialogue that is telling you that you're dealing with this in a certain way. It's uh, interesting, and I feel like. Uh, I want to be sold on it because there's so many aspects of it that are uh, similar to the tabletop kind of narrative that I like. And at the same time, it, it it does feel like we're so enamored right now with so many different types of games. And like, I I hope that uh, I hope that if I play it a little bit more, that I'll start to ha enjoy it more quickly because the kind of things that I'm playing right now, like I feel like I'm enjoying them right this second. And for the 15 minutes I got, that, I, that I played, I wasn't I got, enjoying it yet. I got trapped in it because something is happening in this game every 15 seconds. And you want to see what's going to pop up. And something is always popping up, so you always want to check on the next thing. And you might have a situation where it's like, okay, I need to study my craft, my, but my craft is currently in work. And I need these resources, which are finite, and they're going to disappear in 60 seconds. So I need the time to align just perfectly. So there is like, there's a lot going on. And I was sort of immediately caught by it. So what else do you have going on? What are you playing? The new Path League. Oh, we could, we could talk about that. So this is probably one of the, so it's Path of Exile 3.3. It's the Incursion League. Uh, they've reworked a lot of the old skills. They've also done a complete rebalancing of all trap skills and a complete rebalancing of all Vol skill gems, uh, which is really great because I think that one of the problems that a lot of people have when it comes to Path of Exile, especially coming from other action RPGs, is a lot of people feel that Path of Exile eventually devolves into, I press my one attack button and that's it. And I feel like Incursion League has sort of subverted that and changed it for the better and has given uh, more build decisions that involve more buttons to press. Yeah, I mean, Vol, Vol skill gems were kind of always balanced like the counter to that thing you just said because they are uh, powerful skills on a timer that is based on the amount of things you kill. Which, But that's the issue, was that was that you, why pool any resources or have any of your skill gems kind of like slotted to this thing that was going to be powerful after you killed a lot of things because that was going to be weak during bosses or inconsistent in general. So why not just kind of get something that is more, maybe like less powerful overall, but more consistent so you're always using it. So they've clearly like gone back to add more value to those Val skill, Val skill gems to make it so that there's more choices and there's more kind of freedom. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that the Vol Skill Gym just gives you the base skill really changes everything. Uh, the fact that um, it's easier to cast those skills, the fact that uh, damaging bosses gives you Vol Souls, they're just way more usable and way more playable. And also just the fact that that everything works off the same support gems is such a good quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're good, and, it, and it rebalances some skills because some people might think, okay, uh, why would I play Fireball if I could just play Incinerate? But now there's the consideration of, well, if you play Fireball, you have access to Vol Fireball by default. And Vol Fireball is awesome. So it really ha- makes you... Uh, reconsider what skills you want to use. So you might opt instead of playing uh, Blade Flurry, you, you might uh, or or Ethereal Knives. You might say, "I'm going to play Blade Vortex because it gives me access to Vol Blade Vortex." Okay. Um, there's still a lot I don't really understand about the league that is like even going over my head, having played Path for like 300 hours, which is insane. Um, the the new incursion mechanic, I just currently i i've i've watched tutorials i kind of get it but i'm not far enough in the game that i can really capitalize on the weird shit that is going on in that um you kind of find a there's a new uh character and you find them out in the wild and they tell you to go to this thing this this uh dungeon in the past uh, but you only have like a very limited time to go there, and as you kill things or damage the bosses, the time is slightly raised so that you can do a little bit more. But the idea is that as you're there, you are trying to kill bosses or open doors because after you do an 11, 11 of those, you unlock a chance to go to the dungeon, and it's basically a dungeon amalgamate of the last 11 things you did if that makes any sense if i'm understanding it makes correctly sense to me if, if if so so 11 times in a row you see this uh you see this this uh character and they tell you to go to a they they tell you to go back in time to a room and then you're in the room and there's bosses there are doors there are things there are enemies there are things that they can drop and you are basically under a strict strict time limit to make something happen in that time to open up doors to kill bosses. And then finally, on the 11th time, you get to go back to a dungeon that was made by the previous attempts that you had. The doors that you opened will be opened, and the doors that you left closed because you ran out of time will be closed, and the bosses that you kill or don't kill will add buffs or not buffs to the dungeon that you see... Which Eventually. also in turn gives you better loot. Which in turn gives you so, better loot. So you might see something that might put an armory in, or it might put in um, a breach, a breach laboratory. So you can sort of build the dungeon based on what your current objectives in the game are. So there's ones that are based around jewels and gems and corruption and all of these different things. Uh, and it's really nice. Everybody really likes this league. Because number one, you kill a lot of monsters. Number two, there's incremental progress where, uh, you know, some of the challenges people had with like bestiary is I probably played around 70 or 80 hours of bestiary. 
and I never went to the bestiary bosses. I never got to see all of the content in bestiary. I never got the bestiary specific uniques. But in this league, all of that stuff is accessible to everybody and it's accessible all the time because no matter what, eventually you're going to happen, you're going to happen along the 11 incursions and you're going to be able to go to the temple. And I think that that's why this league is really good because everybody gets to see something and you get some agency in the kind of drops you're going to receive. I couldn't understand though, because I, te- I went to a temple finally and nothing happened. I went to the end of it, and I think maybe when I was doing the um, it, little incursions, I did not open the correct doors because I went to a temple and I got to the final room of it, and none of the doors were openable. You couldn't get into the boss room. I I couldn't. I don't understand if so I did I something you, wrong. I guess you didn't open the doors that lead there. They sort of. I find I found the first one or two of them pretty difficult, but. By the time that you get to around your third incursion temple, you'll probably completely and entirely understand it. You'll probably realize which enemies are more likely to hold the Stone of Passage, which is the key that opens the doors. And you'll probably start to understand uh, what the different rooms are going to provide to you when you when you use them or when you upgrade them. So it's a very deep league because this whole incursion mechanic seems like itself kind of kind of serious, you know? Yeah, and it also seems like something where it benefits a fairly balanced build because you need the clear speed to get through the mobs and then you need the single target to kill the boss of your choice. Uh, So I think that this league is going to see some really good stuff in terms of the meta where it's not just going to be based on okay, if you run laboratory, you go single target. If you run maps, you go clear speed because the incursions are always going to be a consideration. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not for, far enough that I'm having fun, though. That's the thing. It's like I'm I'm very early on. I'm doing this witch uh, triple herald blade vortex elementalist build. That, that All those words meant nothing to me included because um, uh, I don't understand really how it works yet. Uh, I'm not at the part where I'm having fun, and that is, you know, always sad about Path of Exile because you always have to wait a little while, you know. What are you leveling with? Uh, garbage stuff. What do you mean? What am I leveling with? Uh, uh, skill gems? I'm leveling with yeah. uh, Arc. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would have said Fire Trap or Arc are probably the ways to level. But that's like... I just I just got Arc, so I'm just now having fun. For a while, I was using Lightning Tendrils, and oh my oh, no. god. Yeah, oh, that's god. a bad skill. Oh God! But you know what? It, but Who you know did what's that? really cool is lightning tendrils cast while channeling arc, and that's pretty alright. Oh okay, all right. I could see why that would be interesting. Um, so that's Path of Exile. I think we did a good job not getting too deep in the weeds on that one. No, we got to move on. All right, I've been playing uh, RimWorld. I th- oh man, I'm really far into RimWorld. Uh, I am 63 hours into RimWorld. So RimWorld is a game where you build a colony and a lot of people consider it very close to Dwarf Fortress because it's not as much about the gameplay as it is sometimes about the emergent things that are happening in the gameplay. I think it's only about that, but sure. I think the gameplay is actually pretty fun. I like building up the, I like going up the progress tree and getting attacked and, and sort of playing the tactical strategy of dealing with the attacks and, and building out base defenses. And so 
at the start of the game, sort of three people crash land onto their own worlds. Uh, you choose where you want to go, what factions you want to be near. Uh, <clears throat> and you're sort of stuck with the people and the skills that they have and the problems that they come with. Uh, so I had this one guy who was really good at talking and his name was Toad. And I really liked Toad. So I decided that Toad would be sort of the leader and Toad would have the nicest room. And Toad, the, the good thing about Toad is he always pulled his weight. He always helped out in fights. He's the one who built everything. He was sort of always involved. So <clears throat> one day, a, an alien ship crashes outside of our, our home. We sort of have this giant uh, stone wall that goes all the way around our base, and it crashed outside of that. So Toad went out there to build a perimeter around it because eventually we were trying to find some way to destroy it. So first we wanted to just contain it. <coughs> so as he goes out there to build this wall, the aliens come out of the ship and they start firing at him. One of them burns his eye and one of them sort of uses this uh, explosive device that rips his nose off. So now he's really disfigured but he still fights, he survives, and, and that was that. But now he's disfigured, so his wife leaves him. And then things start to get bad, because then what happens is there's this woman who is constantly hitting on him while he was married, and then Toad tries to make a pass at her, and that doesn't work either. So then he starts to get desperate. Now what I'm trying to do, and, and now essentially this person who used to be involved in everything happening in the colony is too depressed and too like out of their mind to help with anything. <clears throat> so what we started doing is we started capturing prisoners to sort of harvest their body parts so that Toad could fix himself. So we capture this one prisoner, we ready them for an operation where we're going to remove their nose, harvest their organs, do what we need to do. And then a pack of manhunting cougars comes in. And essentially what happens is Toad is unable to help because he's too, you know, messed up to, to help out. He's too depressed. So all of my colonists just start taking tons of damage, start, uh, they're all bleeding from, from this fight. They all survive, but essentially we need to let the prisoner go without any operation happening because we need to divert all the medicine and all the beds to now all of the newly sick and injured people. So then what happens is we capture a tribe of three people who came to attack. One of them happens to be very good at medicine. So we coax the one who's very good at medicine over to our side. And then we force that person to operate and remove uh, sort of the organs and body parts from uh, their previous friends. So that person, who originally had depression and now is being forced to operate on their former brethren starts going crazy and just starts wandering around the fields in like 120 degree weather and getting heat stroke and passing out and needs to be constantly carried back to their bedroom because they're so depressed and upset with what's going on. But once we finally get them back, they're able to install the nose onto Toad uh, but we weren't able to get any good eyes. So they put a golden eye into Toad, which doesn't help him see any better, but finally he feels and looks less gruesome. So now he is sort of back to being the mayor again and back to being able to uh, 
uh, survive the the harsh world of RimWorld. Hmm. I mean, like, I know you originally played this game because you wanted some of that emergent gameplay that kind of comes from Kingdom Death. And I feel like it's really cool to hear that kind of stuff because uh, Dwarf Fortress was a little bit impenetrable and not nearly as interesting as RimWorld. But RimWorld kind of is that Dwarf Fortress 2.0 that is more interesting but still has that insane level of, like, you will never play the same game and tons of stuff are going to happen and it's going to create these weird-ass narratives. I love that. Yeah, and it's more... um, It's not an aesthetically pleasant game, but it is easier to read than Dwarf Fortress is. Well, yeah, that's a a low uh, bar. Yeah, so... Uh, maybe you could tell me a little bit about uh, Dragon Ball Fighters. Oh wow, you hit me with it. Uh, Not Dragon- too much though. Dragon Ball Fighters. Uh, I have been playing every single week since it launched. Still in love with that game. Very fun. But two new characters recently came out. Uh, their names are Vegito and Fused Zamasu. Um, I was pretty excited about these characters coming out. I like their place in Dragon Ball Super. Uh, Fuge Zamasu is a very interesting antagonist, and Vegito is the uh, Potara fusion of Goku and Vegeta. Um, Things were looking pretty good for these characters before they came out, and uh, everything that we saw looked pretty interesting. And when they actually came out, it turns out that they are... uh, so much more interesting than anyone could have at the time thought and they really throw a massive wrench into dragon ball fighters uh that makes me just as in love with it as i was uh when the game first came out so let me ask you this though does having these more diverse and like interesting characters sort of paint the original roster in a negative light like maybe they could no it paints it it paints them in a different light it just it just makes it so that there are uh, more characters overall that are very successful and very viable, and it kind of also these characters are so bizarre that they kind of have strange interactions with other characters, and it paints the previous characters in a different light of whether or not they they maybe have unique interactions or not. Um, the thing the, the the most insane thing I would say and what I was talking to Ryan Galloway about was that Vegito happens to be and I was not excited about this character, I was more excited about Zamasu. Vegito is the most fun fighting game character I have played since I played Q in Street Fighter Three, Third Strike. I, I feel like that is uh, a, a wild thing to say out loud. I've played a lot of fighting games since then. I've played a lot of fighting game characters. Uh, uh, Vegito just is a masterclass of character design. Why? Can you tell me a little bit about, about like top level? What is he doing? What's what, his what is what does Vegito do, and what is kind of like different about him? Vegito comes uh, stock with something that Gohan, adult Gohan, had, and that's called reverse beat which is uh, in these uh, 3v3 games and in the Marvel-y kind of games, there's usually a kind of piano method where you go from the lights to the mediums to the heavies. So you do something like standing light, crouching light, standing medium, crouching medium, so on and so forth. 
Um, and it, it, it gets to the point where you really don't have that many options going from things to going from attack to attack, but it's not really that important. It's not important because you're not mixing up the, the enemy with these. It's more meant as like okay. a combo thing of like, you can always go to a heavier version of the current thing and it'll, it'll cancel. It's not a, a link style combo. It's a cancel style combo with Vegito. Uh, Vegito comes with a reverse beat. He can go backwards in this, uh, in the in that uh that in that whole like combo theory. So he can do things like use his uh crouching medium, which is an extremely long range slide, into his light attacks, which are all of his all of his u- normals are extremely unique. So for example, his standing light is like a Chun Li kick. That's weird. Like you press light one time and he does like a five kick attack. And if you press down light, instead of doing what you would imagine as like a low kick kind of thing, like a crouching low kick, he leaps extremely far forward and slams his fist onto the ground. So he has these really interesting normals right. that you can go back and forth with and re- and reverse beat to kind of mix up the way the opponent is going. But one of them like so- yeah, I was going to say, initially, this doesn't sound like anything that would sell a newcomer on this character. Um, just, the, just the way that I would sell a newcomer on the character without getting like too complicated into the way he works is that he just works really well. Um, his staple of attacks and moves and specials and stuff looks brutal. Like He is the Cody of this game where his attacks are flashy they're rude they're like you know like aggro and in your face like he has this this like multiple kick attack where he crosses his arms and is just kicking you with his feet he has beam swords that he's like impaling you with and throwing you around the stage with um in the air he has access to this like flying throw where he takes you from the ground and just throws you back to the ground and then he himself like falls really quickly to the ground and is able to like quickly meet you at the ground he is just like a really brutal in your face character um that like all of his moves the most fun all of his moves look flashy and they work like they work so well um he's the kind of character where once you play him for an hour or two and you kind of understand what his moves are doing you get to the point where as you're doing combos uh, like what makes him so fun is that I'm not really thinking about the next thing I'm doing in the combo. I'm thinking about what I want to do with the combo. It's not a, it's not like a lot of other characters where I'm thinking about doing a bread and butter. So many of his options work in a combo that I'm thinking things like we're near the corner, but my back is to the corner. So what I should do is I should end this combo by throwing him back into the corner or in, in a reverse way of like, we're near the corner and I'm looking at the corner and he's his back is the corner, so I need to end this combo in such a way that his back will still be to the corner. But I want to do something where I reset him, and reset the enemy, and continue putting pressure on him. And there's so many other things, so many other options of like, well, I I want to end this combo for max damage. So what I want to do is I want to DHC into my next character, and I think what I should do is DHC in such a way to get max damage I was out of this, this next would be character. Simple. What? I was told this would be simple for a top level and then and then you went off the deep end. Yeah. I mean I just I just mean like he is 
brutal and aggressive and fun to watch and he works and he's awesome and everything he has is unlike uh other characters in the game currently without going in, in depth and it, it 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 definitely changes to play that character you have to get in a wholly different mindset about the way that you're pressuring or defending and that is very exciting. He's just very fun, very aggressive, very cool looking to play. Zamasu is mm. Zamasu is the other character added this time. He is far and away the most complex character that they have added uh, to this point. To the point where I cannot really do his combos. And I'm someone who could like do a lot of the the more complex Marvel like fly and fly combos and the. Uh, Magneto corner loops and stuff like that, which I think were very hard in Marvel 3. Um, with Zamasu, he doesn't value the kind... Of, he he is basically one of those characters in uh, DB Fighter, Dragon Ball Fighters, where you can't really take any of the current knowledge that you have of any other character and go into it with Zamasu because he just really doesn't have that kind of combo structure. Uh, he he has a fly on fly. He's the first character to have a fly on fly, and what probably makes him Whatever more what probably makes him more unique than any other character that has ever had a fly on fly in these three v three games is that he can block during the fly on fly, which completely changes the way the game works. Because usually when you do the fly, the fly is meant for this um, aggressive thing, and it's not meant for a neutral thing. Um, in Dragon Ball Fighters, any character at any point can super dash at your direction. And with Zamasu, he can fly and then start flying around and throwing projectiles and putting on pressure. But just because he's flying doesn't mean that he is in a, you know, weakened state. He's in like a state where you can capitalize on the fact that he's flying because all he needs to do is hold black hold back while you're flying or trying to attack him and then he can punish really hard so he's this interesting character that requires a lot of complex thought of like moving around flying peppering your opponent with frustrating things having them do something that is trying to punish you for the fact that they think you're going to do projectiles from your fly state and then you block and and repunish from that and then his combos are just unbelievably complex Combos where you are doing multiple things before they will actually capitalize. For example, one of his main moves is an attack that uh, puts electric orbs on top of him that will shoot electric beams three to five seconds, depending on the strength of the attack used after you used it. So not at all useful in that second and extremely okay. useful for combos or putting on pressure and kind of doing this kind of uh, weird pusher luck against the enemies. Like the Zamasu did these uh, timer scam orbs where in five seconds they'll attack. Do I trust trying to punish him or is he going to block and then I'm going to hit and then his orbs are going to attack me? So very interesting complex character with a lot of other weird interactions. He's the kind See, of... I when when you tell me about this though, it's hard for me to understand like still like what makes these characters unique. And maybe it's because I come from just my favorite fighting games are Guilty Gear and Blaze Blue. And if you asked me, okay, so what is the new character in these games? And I said, okay, so this is a character 
where I place swords around the arena. And then as the characters move towards the swords, I can use them to punish. And I feel like every time that uh, a Dragon Ball fighter's character is explained to me, it's just they're a Dragon Ball character and they do this thing that matters because in fighting games, this happens. And it's really hard for me to understand as an outsider, like why I should care. Like if I don't know fighting games, like why should this character make me excited? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's actually a really interesting point you make. Um, with, with you know, Blaze Blue, they have this drive, which is probably one of the most brilliant mechanics they've ever had in a fighting game because they center a character's entire logic around a singular button that does something. And then, like, variations of that and combos are meant to kind of set up this, this overall theme of the character that is based around a singular button. Um, it is hard to explain... Vegito. Vegito has spirit swords, which I think are kind of the coolest thing with them, where he impales you, and then he can throw you up, and then from that he can super dash. So he kind of, like, breaks the overall combo structure of Dragon Ball Fighters. but when you don't know Dragon Ball Fighters' combo structure very well, then I can see how that doesn't mean a whole lot to you. Um, I think the most interesting character so far is probably Brawly, because Brawly is all about uh armor on his moves and grabbing you so he's like about like opening you he's up like, in different yeah. ways than any other character he's a very like in a in a game that is very rushed down he's a very like put pressure on you make you afraid and then grab you and he doesn't do a lot of damage he's balanced to not do a lot of damage but to open you up in s new scary ways uh so like i think Super he's probably Skrull. he's probably yeah All i right. mean like well Piccolo is Super Scroll, right? Like, Piccolo is extremely complicated. And only the now, after the most recent balance update that kind of nursed, nerfed adult Gohan, uh, is Piccolo actually seeing more play. Interesting. All right. Um, but, well, but, uh, I'm glad you're still enjoying that. Blaze, uh, Blaze Blue Cross Tekken comes out tomorrow. That's I am still enjoying that a whole ton. And uh, I just feel like to say something like the, the character that I'm the most excited with in a fighting game since... Q in third in Street Fighter Third Strike since I played that is Vegito. I just I feel like that means a lot. Like that character is as you are playing it, it he flows in a way that is unlike like he he is the example of why combos exist in a fighting game. Why should you press a bunch of buttons to do damage? Why do you not just get that first hit and then do the damage? Like, it doesn't make any sense almost from a designer standpoint. And Vegito is the example because as you're doing the combos, there's ways you want to end the combos or ways you want to do the combos. And you are thinking about it and it works in, you know, in practice in a way that is just like brilliant. It flows. Um, but enough about Dragon Ball Fighters. I bought Blaze Blue Cross Tag. Um, I played that. I played the the demo of that on Switch. Yes. Before before I played the demo on Switch, I was not going to buy that game. Um, I don't like playing fighting games that are not on a computer or uh, somewhere that I can play with a fighting stick, and. That demo got me interestingly excited, and why is that? Um, they took Blaze Blue characters, and they took uh, a lot of the things that I wanted to like about Blaze Blue and those fighting game mechanics, and they took out the things I didn't like. Um, they took out the things like having all these extra moves or combos that kind of only worked 
in this certain type of combo that made it look flashy but wasn't uh, utilitarian. Um, they made the combos flow in a way that flows similar to like Dragon Ball Fighters or to Marvel where you understand the uh, general flow of combos and you're able to just kind of just do with those characters. And then there's complicated moves that switch those things up. But you're still able to, like, day one, know the general combo, uh, like, piano method, and then be able to always input that and then kind of get a result. And uh, the combos just work. They feel great. Um, Characters that I had played, you know, for hours and hours in Blaze Blue and never really liked, like, Ragna... Um, I felt like I instantly was having so much fun with the way that his combo structure is in Blaze Blue Cross Tag. Not to mention, I really do like the overall way that they are positioning it. Um, I have really wanted yeah. for a long time this uh a MOBA style fighter where it was going to be really cheap, and then they were going to release the characters at a rapid pace for a price. And I really liked that. I really like that idea of like listen, we're going to make the game cheap. You, we're going to give you a base set of characters. If you want to just play, just play. But for everyone else who was having a lot of fun, maybe we're going to give you these characters. We're going to release them quick and fast, and they're going to be cheap, but there's going to be a lot of them. And you're going to have to make that choice if you don't want to spend all the money, whether or not you're going to buy these characters. And I kind of I love that. I've wanted that. I wanted that out of Street Fighter V. So I feel like Blaze Blue Cross Tag uh, is a better capitalization on the things that I wanted out of Street Fighter V, and it, as a 2v2 game, it has a whole different emphasis. It's not as yeah, much... Yeah, I like 2v2. I mean, my favorite types of fighters are actually 1v1s, and I, I'm really starting to realize in myself that 3v3 is too much for me, and I'd like to think that 2v2 is a nice middle ground, especially with the way that they're handling assists in this game. Yeah, I mean... There's an interesting thing because, like, with 1v1, obviously they can make these extremely complex characters you're, you're meant to play for 100, 200, 300 hours and not fully understand and just constantly lab out and do all these things. With 3v3, it's more of a team overall that you're meant to lab out for 100, 200, 300 hours where the characters themselves are maybe not on their own as complicated, but it's with the assists and with the overall team yeah, dynamic yeah. that makes uh, them more you, complicated. You know, one of the things that's always plagued Blaze Blue and, and, and in a way has always plagued Arxis single-player games, including Guilty Gear, is imbalanced matchups because when you create these characters that are so specifically good at one thing and have these sort of niches or gimmicks, you're going to have matches like 8-2 style matches where 80-20, one character is always going to win. So I think that um, having a 2v2 really helps alleviate some of those problems with in- inconsistent matchups. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting because y- you bring up a really good point. Um, the uh, having the one, one versus one... Um, it can have more complex characters, but it, it, it falls prey to these matchup imbalances because there's nothing else going into the game that you don't have. You have one character versus the enemy's one character, and there's no surprise that you can level against them. Whereas with 2v2 or 3v3, you have these other this team that has dynamic matchups, and because of it, you don't go into it feeling as outweighed from the very beginning like with street fighter or something you can watch street fighter tournaments and people just go into fights knowing that they are this is the character they play 
they've played it for a million hours they this is the character they the only character they can really com- feel comfortable with and yet they're going into a bad matchup and they know beforehand that they have to you know really stick it out and be defensive or try certain sure, things yeah. and with a 2v2 it throws enough of a wrench in the thing but it allows for more complex characters than a 3v3 because they can put a lot of weight and strategy onto a singular character and only expect you to know two rather than the three. It cuts down a lot, but but makes added complexity to the characters in the game. I feel like all of these reasons that I'm explaining right now has yeah. made me really excited. And having and, currently and you know, like fallen... When it comes- when it comes to 3v3s also, I feel like I'm always not only fighting the other player, but I'm fighting all of the mechanics. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what I mean is, okay, so this matchup is good for this character, so I want to tag out their opponent. When I, when I do this combo, I want to use these assists in these order. And it sort of takes me out of the one versus one fight that I kind of enjoy and makes me think more about like the mechanics. And and that's sort of the other reason that I'm kind of turned off from three v three fighting games. I, I think I I mean I, I think it's a I, I it makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's a personal thing. Like I know what you're saying. Like what what are the because three v three puts more weight overall on some mechanics in general of the game because stuff like tag out, stuff like how do you snap back, stuff like uh, DHCs and all this kind of stuff goes into the value of the characters. Like how for example if if you you're talking about like you have a character out and then there's a bad matchup, the enemy has a character out and you don't feel comfortable with that enemy's character, how does the game uh uh balance a tag out? Like in Dragon Ball Fighters, a tag out means that your character flies directly at them as if it's a super dash, which means that if the enemy was waiting for you or knew that you were going to do that, you were low health or something, it's obvious that you were going to do that, or they're just being defensive, they're crouching, they're waiting for you to do that, you tag out, and then they get a full punish, and then they snap back your character, and now you're back to the other character that you felt uncomfortable with. Um, in, in Marvel, it works a little bit differently, where your character just kind of falls out of the side of the screen. Um, the mechanics of the game, when you have a 3v3, kind of play a bigger... Uh, like portion of the game whereas in the 2v2 or 1v1 it's more of those 1v1 or like it's more of the character dynamics rather than the game dynamics and and I think 2v2 is really interesting because I haven't really played a strong 2v2 there's stuff like Tekken Tag um, but most games are 3v3 or 1v1 and I feel like Blaze Blue Cross Tag is really on a an interesting uh, kind of fence between having the multi-characters which adds all the dynamics and craziness of multi-characters but it's still not 3v3 and it's still more focused on the individual characters the individual combos and what those uh assists and stuff can bring to and them. i'm really hoping that uh the dragon ball fighters you know that brought so many new people into the scene scene and i'm hoping that some people you know see this game and say i'm not familiar with this property but I really liked Dragon Ball Z and these characters all look really diverse and they all have cool stuff going on. So I want to check this out. And I hope that it really just brings more people into it. Uh, I mean, I said beforehand that I felt like this was the test, right? Like Dragon Ball Fighters had this huge mass appeal and it, it going into Evo, it is 
the highest selling of the games that are currently at uh, uh, at Evo, and it is also the highest uh, entrant number. I love Dragon Ball Fighters. I I think it deserves those two spots, and I can't wait to see what Evo looks like. But I feel like Blaze Blue Cross Tag is the litmus test for are there people who never wanted to play fighting games and then they play Dragon Ball Fighters and it 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 has simple aspects. It has aspects to jump you in. It is the game that if you've never played fighting games, I feel the most comfortable recommending because it has a lot of mechanics that are for people who just don't want to learn and it want the you just want to be able to do and not learn. And uh and yet somehow I bet that there will be better training modes and things like that in this version of there already are because I played the demo. All right, so uh, I think that we should transition away from video games and into board games, uh, provided that you are feeling like you've said everything you want to say. I know we're both playing Wizard of Legend. That's a pretty solid rogue light available on Switch, which is a nice platform Steam, to have a please. rogue light on. And also Mario Tennis or Mario Striker Aces, I forget whatever the Mario tennis game is called, is also having a demo right now on Switch that everyone seems to like. I haven't tried it out yet. Did you? I have not. I have no interest. I could, I could get down on that. Board games? Um, I mean, yeah, man. This is It's weird because we, we spend so much time talking about video games when like my real love at the moment kind of lies with a lot of board games secretly. Is it secret? Because you just said it. I It's secret. Uh, so we have not talked about your experiences with Millennium Blades, which is my favorite board game, card game. I guess we have game right now. Um, Millennium Blades is. So we, we previously well, talked about it. It is a board game about a collectible card game where you're building a deck and competing against other players in tournaments, but also trying to amass a collection, amass friendship and compete on multiple levels yeah i mean I, I feel like the best way to sell it to literally anybody is that if you ever got excited about the concept of a magic the, the gathering draft where you and a bunch of friends open up packs at the same time and then draft cards and then build a deck based on that this is kind of that where you're always you're starting from nothing and you're building complex decks from many 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 sets and you know thousands of untold cards that have thousands of untold synergies that the designers themselves could never even play test because we encountered a uh infinite bug in the game it's not a bug because they uh they talk about it it's not it is a bug but they talk they knew that there was this would happen it, I mean, it's it so is an imbalance, but they knew it would happen. It is imbalanced, but they plan for it. There's rules in the rule book for how to deal with infinite loops. Okay, if, so if you create a combo, that that creates an infinite loop. Uh, first thing I would say about that game is that, as someone who's ever played, you know, card games, the way that it is a card game that is not technically card game, I think it is one of the most brilliant goddamn things I've ever seen philosophically. You are not playing the card game. The card art and the name of the card is not related to what the card does. It's the overall impact of the card. If there was a card that was meant to be like, it's overpowered and it makes your opponent sad that you play it, then this game is like, 
it doesn't do a thing. It's overpowered and it makes your opponents sad when you play it. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it, it's the more like meta emotional or meta sure. impact of a card. And I think that's like unbelievably interesting. The idea that you're opening a pack, but it's not a pack. You're taking the one rare card and then you're getting a bunch of commons. But where do those commons go? Those commons are represented by your deck box which represents kind of all the other cards in your deck and you're playing you're playing an air deck that's what you're playing you know you're playing a the concept behind your deck is you're playing all these air cards that synergize the game doesn't need to have a million common air cards that all have these synergies it cuts right to the point it says you're gonna have rares and legendaries and stuff that have bound that have you know the synergies and interesting things to do with these air cards but you're gonna have a deck box that just represents all the commons you're opening that have that overall synergy with the rares and the legendaries you're opening and i love that 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 there's all these things in the game on the characters on the deck boxes on the accessories the kind of more uh, that, that are kind of more about the philosophical impact of those aspects of the card game rather than a literal card. They're not a literal card, you know, because a lot of the yeah. cards do things outside of combat or overall tournaments. They're doing stuff in different phases or doing weird things. And I think it's I think that kind of aspect of it is like it. it the, I think it might be one of the smartest games ever developed. And- and I love the characters because, for example, there's this one character that's all about selling cards. And the way that he works is... Maury Cardman. After, yeah. There's a, there's, essentially, there's an aftermarket where you can sell your cards. You have a finite amount of sell tokens. But if someone buys a card from the aftermarket with your sell token on it, you get it back. So as Maury, what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to sell the other players on your cards the way that he actually would because he owns a game shop. So you want to say, hey, what kind of deck are you building? I have this this card that's just right for you. And and you're trying to to sort of make that happen. Then there's other there's another character who's totally based on just having more money than other players. And not only does he start with more like cash, but he What's gets his bonuses. Name? Please, uh, I I forget. Do you remember? Uh, uh, it's I just the remember it's the as... it's the uh, Seto Kaiba looking guy the, the, uh, with the white hair. The and, rich and the guy. Thing that's kind of it's like something yeah, suitcase. Fulton suitcase. Fulton suitcase. Yeah. I, I don't know why Fulton, but but what I do know is that uh, he has the ability to sort of look inside packs before uh, he buys them, which I think fits into the character nicely and also can spend money during a tournament to make his own cards more powerful, almost like as a bribe or something like that. So yeah. I, I love the way that the characters sort of play into your overall strategy. I love the way that you can get one card, which totally changes what you're trying to do. Um, I love the fact that there is a card in the game called a deck note, where it's a deck box where if you have a friendship card from another player, so if you've exchanged pleasantries, you can get a, a friendship card from them. You can use the deck note to return the friendship card to them and then you gain points equal to 20 times the amount of, of, of friendship, uh, plus you flip a card in their tableau. So you're sort of like leveraging their friendship to mess with them. And it's and, also and a, a very thinly veiled death note. 
Yes, it is a, a Death Note reference because you you know you have the name of that character written on the friendship card. So I mean, the amount of of, of really references cool. in that game are like a nerd's paradise. Like playing the game when there there was there's a Final Fantasy expansion that like had me the last time we were playing. I totally played like a moron because all I did was buy the Final Fantasy expansions, and they're very expensive. But I just wanted to buy them, and they kind of worked out. Um, I don't understand how I lost because I thought I was doing so well, and everyone at the table was talking about how I was doing so well. I was playing Magaroth, which was a basically Sephiroth, um, Sephiroth uh, uh, card and uh, reference card, and it was. Uh, it seemed like I was doing really well. Like the first turn, like for example, people like will make like at the end of a game maybe 100 points if they're doing extremely well. Uh, and that's just off the base points that they make during the game's progress of a tournament. And I made like 40 or 50 points on the very first turn. And I thought I was doing really well, and apparently I wasn't. One of the things is that uh, when people are first trying out the game, they try to make their decks uninter uninteractive. And it can be dangerous because... Other people can really screw with your plans or you, essentially what I'm saying is you always need to be thinking, what are ways that I can prevent my enemy from getting points? And I think that that's a real consideration in this game because if everyone is just building like a score-based deck, then it can sort of devolve into a low interaction game, uh, which I bet a lot of people might leverage as a first criticism against it if they haven't... Um, played like a clash deck or a discard deck um or some like of those these, options or, are there it, i, I yeah, feel like the are. interesting thing with with um one of the one of the more insane things with millennium blades is that you could never in uh, out of all the games that are built on randomness and your skill with you know developing the randomness is um millennium blades is the most complex when it comes to that because you're not only dealing with your character and the values your character has, but you're dealing with the aftermarket, the buying phase, other the other people you're playing with completely change the value of the game. And then you go into these, uh, the fighting like kind of tournament phases, and those are so based around the, your enjoyment or you, the skill of your deck is based around what the other people are going to. You, you can never play the same game because if someone is doing one of those very clash-based decks, I lost... I, I was going to win by so far. I was going to crush you guys in the very first game that I played with you and a uh, friend of the show, Charlene. And one single bad interaction happened where one of my cards got flipped and my entire all my kind of tableau was based around getting points off that card. And then I was also going to get all of the meta points from that card. I ended up losing over a hundred points off that card alone. And it ended up putting me in third place because of a single interaction. And that was because I kind of didn't plan for the clash aspect. So there are cards that plan for clash aspects, cards that plan for different, you know, problems. So the value of cards is interesting because they'll always go up or go down based on what enemies are playing or what's being yeah. uh, currently purchased. And the crazy thing is that like you don't see all the cards in you see a fraction, a tiny, tiny fraction oh, yeah. of the cards because the enemies aren't even playing all the cards. So 
So with, you know, this massive, massive, like hundreds of card uh, uh, kind of overstock that people are buying from that has different uh, expansions that, that the that people can buy, you're not seeing all those cards. So the value of like what's currently in or what could work for a deck is like, you know, all over the place. And people can miss crazy opportunities or crazy synergies or find them. And, you know, like everything changes every single game. Uh, I feel like it's kind of game where like you can play it 10,000 times and never understand it fully. Uh, And also the thing that's crazy about this is like, Level 99 Games, the creator of this, they are sort of a darling in the community, but people in the general board game, like, like you know, hobby, there's a chance that they've never heard of them or have never heard of this game. And even those that have are are pretty unlikely to have played it. I, I met someone at a board game that uh, meet up this weekend who's like, oh, I've always been dying to play Millennium Blades, but I never have. And, and I think to myself, like, well, why not? should play it i i uh, so i've always said that is like why is bgg board game geek is is a blessing and a curse it's weird because getting into this world and i love it i'm sorry like i i i i'm new to it but i love it uh is the the world of board games is board games happen on kickstarter and they get kickstarted they they happen on kickstarter basically exclusively and then their success and how the board game turns out is kind of almost always based on the boardgamegeek.com hype of it. Because the boardgamegeek.com hype will either make it so that a board game is like Black Rose Wars, where it makes over a million dollars and it completes a billion stretch goals, and the developers are able to do everything plus their wildest dreams with it. Or, unfortunately, like you know, either not make it at all, or you get a game like Imperial where, uh, made by level 99, where it's, it's goddamn brilliant and it looks beautiful and gorgeous. And for whatever reason, like, again, like, like it's a darling, but people don't know about it or something like that. Oh man. But what's really cool about Imperial, uh, level 99's recently kickstarted game is that they made the module on tabletop simulator free to try out. And you can just play it to see if you like it. You know what is also cool about Level 99's Imperial Kickstarter? When the the game was at 199,999. One point until 200,000. And the stretch goal at 200,000 was a solo uh, module of the game. And you texted me about this. You said... Oh wow! There's this solo add-on that could possibly happen, and I looked at it, and it was one thousand nine hundred ninety-nine ninety-nine nine, and I bought it, and I got to be the one that that did it. I was the I was physically the one. What it was going to happen without me? I'm I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm not gonna. I'm not saying that I was the one who bought the solo mode for every single person who played Imperial, but technically. I was the one who bought the solo mode for everyone who plays Imperial. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, you're welcome. I'm a, I, I, t- I said before, uh, in plain English, I'm a huge slut for solo modes. You give me I'm a solo. I'm just happy that they uh, hit the stretch goal for better insert into the game because uh, the one thing that's irking me the most about this hobby is how long setup and teardown can take for certain games, which 
uh, when I play a game where it's really easy, I that makes me so much more interested in the game when the setup and teardown becomes simpler. Yeah, my LTCP and I recently played a game of Gloomhaven because she was craving it, uh, and uh, it was the first time that I got a chance to use the wooden insert from Broken Tier games, and uh, it is really a wild difference. Like When you pay that money to get a, a good, solid insert for your game, you're not paying necessarily just for you know, that satisfying, everything fits right. You're paying for the fact that, like, a game like Gloomhaven that, like, has no goddamn right ever being easy to set up or tear down becomes easy to set up and tear down because you just kind of pull out these these different modules of these wooden kind of areas and you're pulling pieces from these wooden little boxes and little carts and trays and then when the game is over, you just kind of throw them all back into the wooden trays and re-put them back. And there's never any question about where they should fit. There's a perfect place for them. Um, so, yes, that was very exciting. I, I uh, Which also reminds me that my LTCP and I recently played Pandemic. Oh, yeah. So I own the uh, Pandemic Cthulhu version. Did you play that with me by any chance? No. I don't know. I don't okay. know what you're talking about. Uh, so there is a sort of Cthulhu, an eldritch horror version of Pandemic, where instead of op- of uh, viruses, there are these portals opening up, and you're you are essentially traveling around, and trying to destroy these cultists to suppress the um, the elder gods. Wow, which okay. is a cool spin on Pandemic. That's a cool spin on Pandemic. Um, when I played Pandemic, I had a couple feelings that those feelings were this is really good i would play this again but it's not unbelievably great and then the other emotion i had was if this were a legacy game this would be unbelievable and guess what (laughs) i mean i knew this beforehand so it's not really a surprise but pandemic legacy season one and season two are out most people uh agree that season one is better Season one recently went on sale on Amazon from $77 to $48 without tax. Um, So I saw that and I capitalized on it and I got it today in the mail. It is in shrink wrap. I have not touched it, nor will I in any time soon. I am afraid of that game getting more expensive because why would they ever print season reprint season one? when season two exists and with the opportunity to print season three. I don't want to hear about expensive games because I'm mulling over food chain magnate. But how much, how expensive is that? That's like a hundred dollars for a card based game. Wow. That, so. that is a game, you know, sometimes you look at a hundred, like a $200 even for like Gloomhaven and you think, okay, that's a lot of miniatures. That's like a 24 pound box. Maybe I get it. And then you see this hundred-dollar no, game of food chain magnet, magnate, and then it's like, why is this so much? It's yeah, not, and then you think like, it's man, it's conference. a horseshit euro, and there's all these issues and all this other stuff. I don't know that it's a horseshit euro. It looks. <laughs> it's awesome. not a horseshit euro. Sorry, I'm I'm sorry to even dare say that about food chain magnate, where it's like one of the darlings. It's one of the pinnacles currently. Excuse me. It looks so fun. It I know, looks, but it, it looks. I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm more excited for like Agricola or something like that, or Scythe. We've never even played Scythe. Like we're we are, uh, you know, 
terrible, muddy peasants. We are, we have hey, dirt you know, on Scythe our faces. Hey, Scythe is on uh, Tabletop Simulator. You can play it. I don't know if I want to play it on Tabletop Simulator. Tabletop Simulator is a cool thing, James, but you have to understand the difference between actually sitting around physically with your friends. Well, sure, but if you're looking for, to find out, like, will I like this game, then I think Tabletop Simulator can can sort of facilitate that. Yeah, yes and no, because sometimes you play... Like, there's games that are awful, um, like, uh, what, Cards Against Humanity, and they can... Or what is that other one that Sean liked... Where it's like, I think that they're technically awful, but they're good because if the people you play with are there and and they're, you know, vibing, then the overall feeling is what the game creates. And I think that uh, with tabletop games, what has got me into the entire... The, the whole reason I ever play the hobby is that they, they aren't a video game. I'm not in front of a computer playing it. It's that I'm talking with friends like... When, when I played Pandemic recently with my, my gorgeous LTCP, um, we had to go through all of the rules at the same time because we literally opened the shrink wrap together. So we didn't understand the way the mechanics worked or what would be good or not good or how does the game work overall? How the do you, driver. How do you, how do you play this? And you just get the driver, man. It's for, easy for me. That is the game. That is one of the most exciting things because it's talking about all these mechanics of like, wait, hold on. So you're telling me this is a rule. Does this work like this? Does this work like that? Can I abuse it in such a way? Is that possible? And the way that like, you know, sitting in front of someone and they, the way that they interact with these rules and seeing what they do. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? So I think that like I, uh, the way I want to play Scythe, is that when I have the money, which is, you know, not now because Kickstarter is draining me, um, I want to, you know, play Scythe either from Paul's Scythe or I want to buy my own Scythe or something and bring it over and have the appropriate expansions or whatever, be well-read on it, understand it, and then be able to bust it out and then be able to, like, experience it in it in play with all these other people who value different things in their economies and their different like you know board states and everything like that i think that's what i like i, I think the idea of playing it on tabletop simulator is kind of a a cop-out i just feel like there's you know, a lot of games like uh i was gonna say though if you like sitting around and talking to people and that you know those discussions then i would maybe recommend playing the thing um is it based on one of my favorite movies of all time, the John Carpenter movie, The Thing? It absolutely is. And it Fuck is a off. game where one person is starts out as The Thing. And essentially, think about it as pandemic of like, okay, so there's this crisis. Uh, we are trying to get out of this facility and everyone is working together. Or are except they? Except for one person. Or are who they? Is the Thing. And you don't know who's the thing. And and you might go into a mission and it says, okay, so everyone needs a item of two power. So you say, okay, who has items of two power? And maybe four people raise their hand and they say, I have an item, I have an item, I have an item, I have an item. So you all go on the mission. And then as you're going through the cards at the end to see, okay, did we, did we succeed? There's a sabotage. And the sabotage says, automatically fail the mission. Oh, it's like, okay. Oh, so, okay. That's weird. So I know that one person in this group is the thing, or maybe I left someone behind and nothing went wrong. 
is that person the thing or is the thing on the mission with me trying to convince me that they are human and what else is oh, crazy is that's, someone... that's a crazier thing of like the thing is there and they're they know they're the thing but they're trying to pretend like they're not the thing yeah because there's also uh different things where you can kill another player you can tie them up and leave them behind uh and, uh, oh, and by the way, can I can I interrupt you? If uh, you or listeners haven't seen the John Carpenter movie, The Thing, it is one of the greatest uh, things. It is one of the greatest films ever created of all time. And you should feel sorry for yourself because it is it is truly phenomenal. John Carpenter, a mastercraft. The, the top 10 greatest movies of all time are probably John Carpenter movies. Vampires, that's not the top 10 greatest movie. Uh, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., The Thing, Vampires, and then Halloween and all this other shit because he's fucking awesome. He's John Carpenter. Sorry. So another interesting part is that – so let me tell you how this played out for me. Um, the game sort of happens over, where you have to get through three sectors, but at the first sector, one person is infected. And at the second sector, more infection goes out, but there's – there's not necessarily a chance that a second person will be infected. And then there's a third sector, which is the same thing. Someone, an additional person may or may not be infected. So in the first round, this person kept saying, he's the thing and thinks that I'm the thing. And then at one point, I, without a shadow of a doubt. What, what did you just say? He's saying that he's the thing, but he thinks you no, he's are saying the that I'm the thing. He's saying that guy is the thing. I know that he's the thing. What? He's Talking saying that you, me. Mason, are the thing. And I said, okay, well, I'm absolutely not the thing. So what's going to happen is you guys should leave me behind on a mission. And they left me behind on a mission and the mission got sabotaged. So I said, see, look there without a shadow of a doubt, I am not the thing. And then the guy said, you're still the thing. Fuck you. <laughs> what are you talking about? You he are the thing. Just, he was just, I was like, no, you're totally the thing. And I, now I totally think you're the thing. So the second round comes around. I've Is there a way proven, to vote someone out as the thing? I've proven that I'm not the thing. And then you as didn't the answer my question, round, Mason. You can tie them. Are up. you the thing? Okay, okay. Spoilers. That guy wasn't the thing either. Oh, so he's just there, he was either distrustful or racist. He was distrustful and he was racist a little bit because he said that guy's Polish, so he's probably the thing. Are you Polish? No, about another player. Oh, okay. So he said, I'm not the thing. I'm Colombian. The thing can't stand Colombian blood. Just like a, so it's just not like a Colombian snorting their coke and telling people that, oh, wow, that was racist. This guy, this guy was great, by the way. His name is Sam, and we're going to meet up and play Mansions of Madness. Most of the time but, you are great when you play board games. Uh, but as the second round rolls around, I actually get infected. And then oh. I have but I've already proven my innocence in the first round. Wait, how did you get infected? Uh, on the second and third rounds, uh, there's a possibility. Yeah, yeah that you, you said that, but like, how did you, like, was there something that happened that you did uh, wrong? When, when you hit round two, there's just a chance. Okay. I don't really, I infected. don't really like that. That's not really in the uh, spirit of the thing. Have you seen the thing? I haven't, but that's not the point. The you point haven't? Is, is that I'll watch it this weekend, but the point is. What is, is wrong that with you? I don't care if I I don't care if I killed this podcast. You should have seen it. It's really good. All right. So at that point I was the thing. And then what happened is I became the captain of a mission and 
I, I'm sort of leading the mission on, and I sabotage the mission with a card that forces the captain to discard their best cards. So I've made it look like somebody else has sabotaged me. That is and brilliant. then I'm discarding all my good cards, oh my and I'm God. like, "All right, that so is who brilliant. is it?" And then, and then the everyone we fail, like things fail, things go to shit, the game falls apart, the humans lose, and then I am the thing, and the Polish guy is also the thing. Did you know he was the thing? I had no idea. So Sam, the Colombian, knew all along. He was right the whole time. But no one was listening to him because he was too accusatory. So people thought he was the thing. Well, he thought you were the thing and you weren't the thing. I mean, in the beginning. Yes. So that's a pretty good game. And then I played Rising Sun, which I do recommend. That's a great game, too. You said it was like uh, Blood Rage. It is considered to be the spiritual successor to Blood Rage. It's not considered to be better than Blood Rage by Board Game Geek, which sure. It is, but yeah. It is? What are you talking about? It's it's higher than Blood Rage? I thought Blood Rage was higher. No, it's not. All right. But uh, the thing that I really like about Rising Sun, uh, so let me ask you a question. In Blood Rage, what happens when two people tie? Everyone loses. Okay, so in Rising Sun, there's a system called Honor, where based on the things that you've done in the game, your sort of honor is ranked. And if you have a higher honor than somebody else, it breaks all ties. And it's a really terrific system, and it's the reason why I like Rising Sun. Okay. You That's also sort of said that uh, uh, unlike Blood Rage, there uh, the different factions have different mechanics or like passes. They do, yeah. Okay, that so sounds pretty interesting. A, I guess, I guess that, that's an interesting thing with Blood Rage is like the the factions are entirely aesthetic. I I don't think that's a good or bad thing. I could understand why from a designer standpoint that is a totally like factions look aesthetically different just because we want them to, and not because um, there needs to be a difference between them because that way you can balance them more easily uh, and balance the other parts of the game more easily. I don't think that. I feel like you're hard on Blood Rage in a way that I don't under, always understand because you only played it one time. But but what if I just like Rising Sun more? Because I think that Rising Sun has a better aesthetic. I think that Rising Sun, um, I I just like having individuality. I like um, what do you? I forget. There's some. There's like a term for that where the starting classes have different stuff going on. Uh, but I really appreciate that in games because I feel like it leads to more replayability. Um, I like that when you play through Rising Sun, uh, you will not see every card in the game. You won't see everything that the game has to offer the first way through. And I like that. Okay. The second um, and third time. I guess it's you between whether or not you like Vikings totally or Weaves. That's true. It's whether or not you, and they you also have, have those a. Uh, awesome giant miniatures. It's whether or not you have a body pillow or not. If you have, if you don't have a body pillow, you love Blood Rage because Blood Rage just kicks ass, and it's about blood and Vikings. So you should like um, Rising Sun, then, right? Yeah, you're right. I guess. So look into it. It's a great game. It's expensive though, but it's a miniature game. So I, listen, are. I don't got time. That's fair enough. I'm really happy with the games that I have now, especially since I backed um, Imperial at the $350 level and got access to. Uh, Battlecon and Argent Consortium and all their expansions. And, That's a uh, whole other thing. Oh yeah, I'm really excited for Argent Consortium because people say that uh, it's the best worker placement game around, and I can get down on that. Hey, guess what? Um, talking, speaking about worker placement and the best worker placement game around, my favorite thing that I've ever played on tabletop 
is Charterstone. My, that is my favorite thing. And when I said that, uh, I uh, to Paul, your friend from Twenty Sided Store or whatever, uh, he gave me a look that I totally understood. I totally understood it because the look was, you are dumb and you are not that smart and you haven't played a lot and you are new to this hobby. You know what? The last thing I just said is true. I'm generally new to the hobby, but I am not dumb, maybe. And I like it for different reasons. And the way Charterstone might be my one of the most exciting things going on in my life right now the the group i think I'm, that it also is based on the group you're playing the group with, i though. am playing with is my mom my sister and my long-term committed partner and we are having a blast i feel like the times that we sit down and get a chance to play it's not every week uh and we don't get to play that for for that long because we just the, the group is just not you know super gamey people and i think that's the more exciting thing like we we aren't playing i'm not playing with people who know how to abuse every system i'm playing with people who are excited and wowed and confused by systems and they're like explain to me i don't i don't really get it and i'm trying to explain to them like on their turn they're like listen i don't even know what to do anymore i'm so confused there's so many new things happening and i'm trying to explain to them different things and then the to see the look on their face of like, ooh, I'm getting it. I, I could kind of see why I would do this or not do this. Ooh, I could screw well, this other player you think over. That that's one of the reasons why you're liking it so much is because it's sort of a way that you can get other people into the hobby. Like it's a great like gateway in, in a sense. Um, no, I, I know that. I know that. I'm not arguing with you that that is a it is a gateway. And I, I'm not arguing with you that it is in, in a lot of ways built based on the people that I'm playing with. But there's a couple things that are Charterstone specific that are not based on those kind of things. The at the aesthetic of Charterstone, I remember specific. I remember it's specifically you said to me you because uh, I, I kept forgetting the name of it. I kept because because of Hearthstone, I kept forgetting the name of it. And you said to me, just look it up. You will not forget it if you look at the aesthetic, and that's true. Uh, the aesthetic of Charterstone is goddamn gorgeous. It is so it's so cute it's so adorable and the whole like as you're playing you're unlocking cards from this index that is putting new rules that feeling of like peeling off a new rule and putting it down and then now every you're explaining it to everyone like hey guys this thing you thought was what worked this way it doesn't work this way anymore sorry there's this new rule that kind of throws a whole wrench into thing and everyone around the table you're watching these non-game players like Wait, what? Seriously? You're telling me this? I, I, I understood the rules to work this way. You're telling me that this new rule is changing everything? I'm not going to get used to that. What is going on? And, like, all these emotions that you're watching these non-game players go through and the feeling of when non-game players are like, uh, are like, ooh, I got a strategy this game. I got this objective card, and it gives me VP every single time I go here and do this. I'm built, I built a minion, and I'm abusing it. And, like, watching all that kind of stuff, like... I am in love with that game. The rules, I feel like another one of the things that it, that are just Charterstone and not necessarily the group that I'm playing with is that Charterstone throws you a curveball that blows your mind every game. Every time I play that game, we we only get a chance to play it like maybe once yeah. a week, one one year of Charterstone per week. And when we do play it, we 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 start off and I say 
You know, last time, do you remember when that crazy rule happened? So, by the way, we all have to follow this new crazy rule, and everyone's like, oh, my God, really? Oh, yeah, that changes everything. And then we play the whole game, and by the end of the game, everyone understands it, and everyone gets the rule. And then the last thing we do is you take a coin and you scratch off that little thing. There's a little scratch-off thing that hides the uh, options, and the winner kind of decides what's going on. And then you scratch off something, and then you get a whole new box, and then the box tells you something, and it says, hey, next time you play the game, all the rules, one of the biggest rules that you thought worked this way is completely is completely different. I hope you're used to that. And the and you haven't even seen the craziest one of those. You yet. say that, but I don't know what it is. Um, but I just... The the feeling that I have, because I don't get to play it that much, that, that sort of tease of like... The next time you play the could because right now I okay I, I don't want to talk about it but the next time I play there's this big rule that completely revalues and 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 the fact that like the rules are this one game thing a lot of the rules are these things where they just hit you with a rule really quick and they're like for the next game you play something is different it's not going to be different forever it's just for the next game and it suddenly changes the the whole thing where it's like wait. I, I, I thought I understood this game. I thought going into this next game, I had this persona. I had these these uh, these these like different settlement kind of things, these different buildings. I, I thought I had a strategy and this kind of this new rule that they're saying is going to throw the whole thing into flux. And the way that the game does that on a regular basis, that every single time that you finish the game is like you thought you understood it. Well, guess what? the one of the core mechanics is completely changed is just to me it, just you wait it, it, it it's to me it's it's something else it is unbelievable it, it is unbelievable i've had dreams about charterstone about i've had dreams about opening things in charterstone maybe you should play more charterstone that's what it sounds like to me yeah i mean i, I am trying to get there uh, i think we're on year seven Charterstone is one of those games where my LTCP is currently pretty far ahead, and I don't really, it doesn't really upset me. Um, I'm not really upset because Charterstone is so brilliantly made that you people don't really F you over, you know, like they don't ruin your fun. Yeah, but I do like that there is some clever positioning that you can do to sort of like take people off of certain things or anticipating people's needs. So you put your meeple there and then they have to kick your meeple back. So you get an extra turn. That's all good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But those are good board game mechanics because you anticipate someone's doing a turn, but you don't necessarily, you don't block their turn. Like they, it comes to their turn and they still have their turn, but they're like, Oh, come on. You knew that I wanted to do that. That was so smart of you for doing that. I'm still going to do the turn but it's going to slightly help you out. And like I think that is like a, a pinnacle of board game design. Not doing something that's going to hurt the person's next turn, but something that is just going to be like, yeah, I'm still going to do the turn, but I didn't know that I was helping you out by doing this. I didn't want to help you out. And I think that's brilliant. I love that design. I love that design. Charterstone is not about... like it, it, all, the, all the mechanics are not about like making the player upset that you did something they're just making them like oh you were clever you were right yeah i was gonna do that you're right i'm still gonna do it it doesn't really like you know put a wrench in my whole plan but but i I, i'm uh you know i didn't want to help you out and now i'm gonna 
bump you off and give you another worker back. I didn't want to do that, but I guess I have to. And I like that. I love that because you're not you're you're not doing something on your turn that makes it so that you limit the amount of fun or they limit the amount of options that another player had. You're just you're just either like getting back you're you're giving yourself more options by being smart rather than giving the opponent less options by you being smart. Is that the deal with games? Um I feel like it's not. Do we need to cover more? Do you do we need to cover Bargain Quest? Are are we good on that? Oh uh, no, we you never mentioned Bargain Quest. Well, I guess we could talk about Bargain Quest a bit since we also talked about Moonlighter this week and those two kind of have a small relationship of you are playing as an item shop except that all your friends are also playing as item shops and each item shop wants the heroes to come to them the best hero with the most money to come to their item shop so that you can maybe sell them something that will defeat the monster that's plaguing the town or maybe you just want to take as much money as you can from them and leave them high and dry and have them die against the boss because you really don't care sometimes but I did because mostly it's about money. I care because a lot. if you become, because if your item shop becomes too well known for oh. always giving the best items, yeah, then the monsters are gonna mess with you. Interesting, interesting, James. Yeah. Um. So when I played Bargain Quest, I kind of upgraded my shop in such a way that my shop really was actually about helping out the adventurers a lot, and. I kind of just had this feeling, I don't know why, maybe it's that para- that paragon emotion, that paragon personality I have where I see a problem and I want to overcome it and help people. And I would get an adventurer, I would pick the adventurer that worked the best for me, and I would outfit them with the most efficient gear. I would give them the most efficient potions and weapons and armor stuff that I knew would help them on the boss. It wasn't stuff that would necessarily always help me out for for selling into them this way, but I would do stuff like, I know that you're going to be more better equipped to take on that monster plaguing the, 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 uh, the town. And I was always able to, I never had my um, heroes that I, that purchased from me ever die the entire game. None of my heroes died. Um, and all, except for the first round, all my heroes also wounded. So I became this this uh, kind of notorious, infamous shop. And because of that, the game just um, handicapped me the entire game. Yeah, so the game is sort of balanced around the fact that victory points, uh, there's two ways to get, to get victory points. You get victory points for wounding the monster, uh, for your hero surviving, and every 10 gold is worth victory points. Uh, but if your shop becomes too well-known through getting victory points through your heroes constantly surviving, the game sort of offsets that because the monsters will mess with your shop. Sometimes you'll lose money, sometimes you'll lose items, or sometimes you'll lose the chance to upgrade something. Yeah, and it'll always happen to you, the winner. So uh, I guess the long and short is sell them items, but maybe... Don't be the best shop. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I hate that every time I, I talk about this game, I sound like a curmudgeon. Um, the art is so gorgeous. The art is so gorgeous. The game is gorgeous. It is so beautiful. It it, it uh, pulls you in on the concept. If you're someone who's played an RPG, uh, it's so, you know, intriguing, the concept of, a, of like an item shop 
and you're selling these potions and equipment to a hero. You're not the hero. You're just the the item shop. And maybe sometimes you want to kind of screw the hero over. And that whole dynamic of like, listen, you're not the hero. You're the item shop. So maybe you're more concerned with making the money rather than actually killing the great evil is so fascinating. Um, I, 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 I like all that. And I also harp on the fact commonly that the game kind of screwed me over every turn because I was ahead of victory points. And I ended up losing because someone else was going through a different method of winning, which is money rather than victory points. And the game doesn't recognize gold as a mechanic that they need to tear down. I kind of wish some of the bosses maybe, uh, you know, screwed over people who had the most gold rather than the most victory points. And that way it kind of added a random element of like, if you're going to go for one or the other type of victory then the game would sometimes randomly screw you over so you kind of had to diversify a little bit more rather than just being like well gold is more valuable than victory points because the game doesn't penalize you for having a lot of gold it does penalize you for for victory points um i think having a mix of both is the way to go yeah uh i i think the one thing that did kind of bum me out was that i feel like every part of the game um, I kind of didn't get the amount of personality or creativity that I kind of wanted. And let me explain, like, the some of the items have these interesting flavor text kind of things that change the rules. There's a katana that uh, the value of the katana goes up if it's put in display. Display is something that you can't, without the right upgrades, sell, but it allows you to um, uh, entice the heroes into coming into your, your place and there's stuff like that mechanics that either help the heroes or help you sell and not all the kind of cards had that interesting mechanics and then the heroes themselves i i think the game the hero that would probably kind of put the the biggest the most confusing thing about the game is that there's this kind of like young hero i forget the name of it but there's the a young he hero there's a young hero where they can be enticed by any type of weapon or armor or item and they have the most money and they also they get... don't have the most money they don't have the most money to start are you sure are you thinking of the nobleman no they have 15 gold to start our young hero was special because our young hero had a hired thug who killed another hero and then the young hero took their money okay well all right well the young hero has this mechanic where the young hero has terrible starting stats but gets double value on the equipment that you sell to them. And I feel like that character is a proof of like you guys know how to do this. That like the game's mechanics and the game's overall structure is goddamn brilliant. But then you have characters like the young hero where it's like I want to see more of that. I want to see maybe the paladin and the rogue and everyone kind of have mechanics that overall change the game rather than just, you know, kind of the more base mechanics and the items are the same way where they're kind of more base mechanics and then you go to the perks and the perks are another opportunity for the game to be insane and wacky and most of them are kind of boring and most of them are kind of just plus zero that's not anything and some of them are minus one or plus one and it's like okay that could be kind of good or bad sometimes and uh Every once in a while, you get a perk that is like, whoa, something insane is happening. This character is doing is getting a plus two, plus two. And if they succeed in wounding the enemy, they get extra gold and they're awesome. And they're, you know, it changes the game the next time you go around because everyone wants that hero to go to their shop. 
And that's the whole game where it kind of is like, I saw shades of like, damn, this game is so brilliant and smart and gorgeous. And the, the aesthetic is so beautiful, but you guys didn't like think of everything. Like you thought of like one or two smart things per mechanic. And then a lot of the other mechanics are kind of stock. Like a lot of the mages are just kind of stock. Like they don't really do anything that exciting. A lot of the, you know, other characters, the other heroes and items are just kind of, you know, item values. Yeah, but they don't do anything. There is an expansion out for it. I haven't looked into it, but uh, my my one gripe about the game is actually the way that I had to buy it because you can only buy it direct from their website and the shipping is like $11. Okay, great. I wasn't sure if I would would like... So the game was 40 and then with that it's 51. Uh, But I wasn't sure if I wanted or needed the expansion so i didn't buy it but now if i want to go back and buy the expansion i have to pay for the shipping again yeah which is just an absolute no unless they release it some other way i mean like that's the unfortunate thing is like i feel like the game is this uh brilliant sort of proof of concept for the core thing and it's not there without the expansions and i hate to say that but i mean this is what we what a podcast exists for is like bargain quest should you buy it can you get bargain quests and maybe an expansion that maybe shares up some of the options and makes the game more complicated and interesting over the long run yes um can you only get the core game maybe not maybe maybe not because maybe you'll play it once or twice and kind of put it on a shelf and never touch it again because it's not that interesting it, it's the promise of something of something interesting. It is the concept of something interesting. It is a gorgeous aesthetic. It's something that you want to want. It's something that you want to want to play, but maybe you don't always want to play because it doesn't always, you know, entice you or surprise you after the first playing. So let me ask you: Is that the deal with games? Send me home. How do we do that? I don't even remember. You don't remember? Um, talk is, about the website and this the stuff. This was the deal with games. This used to be found on WTDGpodcast.com, on Twitter at WTDGpodcast, and at on iTunes at What's the Deal with Games, where you can rate, comment, and subscribe to the show, and it still is. Thank you, Ryan Gowing, crying for the use of your music. We use the intro and outro uh revive beyond of off the album beyond the fleeting gales i'm not used to it anymore it's hard it's hard because i we've been it's been so long i feel uh let me you can find them at the room forever Bandcamp. let me apologize like it's been so long it's this horseshit thing that microsoft did as an update i did a million different youtube videos to try and reconcile this problem i was very upset about it i feel like if, if 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 there we have i know we have viewers and i mean listeners sorry that are upset with this uh personally sorry young robert sorry the the yaganisk um about these kind of things um that's on us i i feel uh you know multiplicatively more upset over the fact that we let you down and i always want to have a podcast and we didn't have a good excuse like the times where someone is in la or someone is in florida I, i i i understand the excuse you can't deal with it but the times where my microphone didn't work and we tried to get together to do to do a podcast and it didn't work because Windows 10 made this new microphone privacy setting, like that's a, that's inexcusable and I feel sorry for that. And here we are. I, I feel like we had an outro at some point. Um, we had a, some sort of send off line. I feel like we just don't have it yet.
We just don't have it yet. Do you want that to be the outro? Uh, we just don't have it yet. That could work. All right. We just don't have it yet. Say it with me, Mason. We just, we just don't, don't have, have it yet. yet. Bye.